Let's open up our Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Uh, my name is Kenson. I'm the pastor of our Bridgeport Church. So really grateful to be with you all and to start off this sermon series. If you guys are not sure where Daniel's at, just know that in your Bible there's always a table of contents right in the very front. And Daniel is in the Old Testament, somewhere right in the, like, the first like half. So you'll be able to find it there. So today, I'm excited to say that we're starting a brand new sermon series in this book. Now, I'm excited for this for a couple of reasons. First is this, is that it gets us in the Old Testament prophetic literature, which is material that we have not talked a lot about here at Park. So that's really exciting to do. And secondly, I'm excited because this book will give us much needed encouragement because many of us have been in hard and challenging circumstances. Now, real quickly, the historical context of the book of Daniel is that the people of God have been conquered, they are enslaved, and, and, and they are currently in exiles from their home. And what we're going to see in these 12 chapters is the life and words of Daniel and what it means to stay faithful to God in a world that doesn't follow God. Because in the end, what we're going to see in the book of Daniel is that God always wins. That at the end of history, God will replace all earthly kingdoms with his eternal kingdom. That's the good news of Daniel. So with that, let me go ahead and read our verses, and then we're going to jump in, all right? So Daniel chapter 1, looking at verses 1 through 7. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Sinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Ethanes, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, Youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king." Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Bethesar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Mishak, and Ezra he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, real quick here, this here, you guys know what this is? This is a passport, okay? This is, this is my passport. And if you know what a passport is, it is, it is a documentation that gives proof of my citizenship of where I call home. Now, it's with this American passport, I can visit countries all across the world. I've had the privilege of going to Turkey, visiting China, Europe, and even Canada. It was amazing, all right? Now, we can stay in these countries for days. We can stay there for weeks, maybe even months. But what this passport reminds me of and what it tells others is that none of these places are my true home. That I'm a foreigner in these places. That I can't vote there. I can't be their prime minister or president. I can't represent them in the Winter Olympics because I'm a citizen here. 
In the same way, we're a foreigner of this worldly kingdom because your passport says that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You know, the apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter. Let me show it to you. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, Peter is talking to Jewish believers who are not in physical exile here. The Jewish believers who are reading this are living in the city of Jerusalem, the land that God promised them. So why does Peter call them exiles? Because Peter understands that even though they might not be exiles of the land, in a spiritual sense, they are in exile because their primary identity is not here. We belong to God and we are headed to another city, the city of God, that this world is not our home, that we're just passing through and this life is a preparation for the heavenly home to come. So this is the challenge that we face as Christ followers is how do we live in this world without being consumed by this world? You know, in our verses today, we will see the historical and spiritual context of Israel's exile. And it's in this exile, Daniel and his friends faced incredible pressure to conform to this world. That they're put in this three-year Babylonian training program for one purpose. And it's for them to give up everything distinct about their faith. That on the outside, yes, they would look like Jews, but their thoughts and actions would be just as worldly like everyone else around them. And the pressures that Daniel faced and his friends faced are the same ones that face us in this world, that it is seeking to conform us to its mold. Friends, you need to know this, that we have an enemy called the devil, and he wants all of you. He wants your mind, your heart, your wallet, your marriage, your business, your kids, and conform it to his image. How are we going to live in this world without being consumed by this world? That's what we're going to get after today. So here are the three questions to help us to learn how to follow God faithfully in a world that doesn't. And here are the three questions we're going to try to answer. First is this, where are we? Where are we? Second, what is happening to us? And third, what is our hope? So first, where are we? What is happening to us? And what is our hope? So first, where are we? Verses 1 and 2 again. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, conquered it, overwhelmed it. Verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought these vessels from the temple to the land of Sinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Okay? So during this time... Babylon is a worldly power here. They're, they're the world's power here. That Babylon is located in what we will call today Iraq. And Nebuchadnezzar ruled over this empire, and he was a successful general. He overtook Nineveh. He overtook Egypt. And in 605 BC, he overtook Jerusalem. And what we read here in Daniel is the first of three attacks that he would have against the city. And you can read the story in 2 Kings chapter 24. Now, in this first attack of 
of Jerusalem, what Nebuchadnezzar does is that he gets into Jerusalem and he takes several young boys of royalty and nobility and makes them captives of Babylon. And we know that Daniel and his friends were some of these boys, and most likely they were 16, maybe even as young as 14 years old. These were high school students being trafficked, being led out of their home country. Now, what's important to see here is that Daniel here in verse 1 tells us what happens, how it happens, when it happens, but he also tells us why it happens. And it's in verse 2. Notice those first few words. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, and also the vessels of the house of God. So in verse 1, we need to see this. Daniel, the author of this book, gives us the historical context, and in verse 2, he gives us the theological context. It's why it's the Lord who gave them over. But, but hold on here. Wasn't Nebuchadnezzar the one who conquered them? Wasn't he the bad guy with the big army? Yes. But it only happened because God allowed it. That God was using Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish the purpose of disciplining his children because they exchanged the kingdom of God for the kingdom of man. That they chose rebellion over obedience to God. You know, it's interesting that in verse 2, it says that Babylon was in the land of Sinar. You know, Sinar is the place in Genesis chapter 11, verse 2, where all of mankind gathered together and built this great tower to make their name great. Do you remember what the name of that tower was? It was the Tower of Babel. Thus, the Babylonians here. This is why the name Babylon is used throughout Scripture as a kingdom that is in opposition to God. This is why the early Christians, when they talked about Rome, they would give it a code name. They would call it Babylon because of its resistance to Jesus. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is the name given to Satan's reign and rule. So keep this in mind. Babylon is more than just a place but it also symbolically represents a state of heart, a rejection and rebellion towards God. And for hundreds of years, this was Israel's hearts towards God. They rebelled and disregarded God. That after God frees his people from the grips of Pharaoh, he makes a loving covenant with his people on Mount Sinai. And it is so straightforward. Basically, God says this. If you obey me and love me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I will discipline you like a loving parent. Very simple, very straightforward. And when they get started, they have a strong start with King David and then also with King Solomon. But after him, things begin to spiral downward. And by the time you get to King Jehoram, who is Judah's 17th king, Israel has completely lost its way. We read that King Jehoram in Jeremiah chapter 36 verse 23 burned the word of God. This is crazy because this is a nation that belonged to God. It was created and sustained by God. This is just how far they were from him. In addition, God in his love sent prophets to warn the people of God. That during the time of Daniel, you had the prophet Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and maybe even Habakkuk. And God raised up a whole team to warn them that if you continue to rebel, right, exile is going to happen. In Isaiah chapter 39, a hundred years before this exile, God warns them of this outcome through the prophet Isaiah. Let me show it to you. Isaiah 39 says this. 
Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of you, your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The entire book of Daniel was prophesied by Isaiah that for so long God was holding up warning signs for them to stop and to return to the Lord and to trust him alone, but they continued to reject him. And then finally, we read at the end of 2 Chronicles chapter 36 that Israel rejected God by refusing to honor the law of the Sabbath. In Leviticus chapter 25, God gives very specific commands on how he wanted his people to steward the land he gave them. That he said that every seventh year, you need to let the land rest. Don't plow it, don't prune it, don't do anything to it, just let it rest. Well, the people of God ignored this, and they they worked the land hard for 490 years. 490 years, God gave them the chance to do the right thing, but they kept rejecting God's command, so God disciplines them. It's interesting to point out that Israel was supposed to rest the land every seven years, and they neglected it for 490 years, so if you do the math, they owed God 70 Sabbath years. Guess how long the people of God were in Babylonian exile 70 years, exactly 70 years. Do you see? This is why they were in exile. It's because they rejected God. They exchanged the kingdom of God for the kingdom of man. Now, how does this apply to us? Have we exchanged the kingdom of God for the kingdom of man? Or if I can ask it in this way, do you live as an exile in this world? Or have you gotten too comfortable in this world? You know, for the longest time, if you're a Christian in this country, you didn't feel like an exile. That for generations, Christianity was the default religion of America, that you, when you met someone on the street or a random stranger, you would just assume that they believed in God. And for our country, those who were in cultural power were the Christians. For example, we've never had a president who didn't claim to be a Christian. And during, the time, and during this time in culture, being a Christian was advantageous, that it would get you into certain circles, it would get you benefits, you could build your career. But now, we're in 2022, and it's not the world we live in anymore. A study by Pew Research said that Christianity is on the decline in America that in the last seven years, it has declined 7%. Being a Christian today is not fashionable. You know, for, for, for me as a pastor, I remember that there was a time growing up where pastors would be honored and it would be a respected occupation in society. But today when I meet other folks and I say, hey, I'm a pastor, it's almost like they feel sorry for me or they're confused. Like, why would you do a job like that, right? Times have changed. And this has created major cause for concern for so many Christians. Oh no, this is the end of Christianity. Oh, the end is here. We're heading back to the dark ages. Oh no, what are we going to do? Let me just say this. Even though there's been a decline of people who call themselves Christian, 
The Pew Research Study also revealed that those who hold the gospel as central and that scripture is their foundation, those numbers remain steady and have not declined. What this tells us is that the decline that is happening to Christianity is really a decline in nominal Christianity. And when I say nominal, I'm talking about those who are Christians by name only. That this is the faith that grandma and grandpa had, and they grew up in America, and it was just kind of the default setting. So what's happening now in our culture is that the people who call themselves Christians are now shedding the title because it's not helpful anymore. The cost of being a Christian outweighs the benefits of it. And let me just say, if this is the decline of American Christianity, that is a good thing. That is a great thing because it's now an opportunity to show really what it means to follow Jesus, to really show the nature of the church, that what we had before in Christian America was just an illusion. It was just people who claimed the name of Jesus but never follow Jesus, that these are people who confuse the American dream with the kingdom of God. They exchange biblical doctrine with pop psychology. They replace devotion to Jesus with vague morality. Christian America was a false form of Christianity that ultimately existed to support me and my own pursuits. So for so many of these so-called Christians, what we see here is that they exchange the kingdom of God for the kingdom of man. Does this describe you? Does this describe you? Have you become too comfortable with this world? Have you made this exchange in your own heart? So this is where we're at. We're in exile. We're in this thing between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And here's the next question. What is happening to us? What is happening to us? Now, what we see next in our verses is how Babylon seeks to conform these young men to their worldview. Now, it's important that we see this because the very same tactics that were used here against these young boys are the very same ones that are used to erode our faith and to conform us to the world. And let me show you the four tactics that Babylon used to erode their faith. Okay, let me show it to you here. Here are the four. Isolation, indoctrination, seduction, and confusion, okay? The four tactics that Babylon used here, Nebuchadnezzar used. So first is this, is isolation. In verse three, these teenagers are isolated from their home, family, and friends. That Daniel grew up with godly parents and godly role models, but now he is thrust in a completely different situation. And this isolation made him vulnerable because he was separated from everything that was familiar to him. That he was separated from godly influences, from the temple, from priests, and it brought about a temptation. Do I really need to stay faithful to God. Who would know if I renounce Christ, renounce God to make my life easier? Who's gonna know? Who's really gonna know? And some of you know how this feels, that we go to a university in a different state, or we go to a different city, or, or we travel for work, and no one knows who you are. You kind of have this idea of having a brand new, fresh start. That with this change of location, you experience a freedom that comes with anonymity. And for some, anonymity has ruined the testimony of people because they thought that they could do whatever they wanted to do. 
We have to remember that whenever you're in a situation where you have the freedom to be whoever you want to be, when you're in a situation when no one else is looking, it's in those moments it reveals who you really are. When no one is looking, isolation is a powerful weapon to attack our faith because it removes us from godly counsel, from godly encouragement, from godly accountability. This is why for those who begin to turn from their faith in Christ, they don't first renounce Christ verbally. They first pull away from biblical community because when they're able to separate themselves from the people of God, it becomes very easy to walk away from God. So this is why when I tell college students or those who are moving to a brand new city like some of you might in a couple of years, I always give the same wisdom. Your first priority as soon as you hit the ground is to find a gospel preaching church and join their small group. Otherwise, you leave yourself vulnerable to Satan's attacks. Here's the second tactic that Nebuchadnezzar used to try to erode their faith. And it was through indoctrination. Indoctrination. It says in verse 4, that with these young boys, teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, okay? These teens were enrolled for three years in the University of Babylon here, okay? That Daniel and his friends would have been exposed to a whole new educational cur curriculum. That Daniel would have grew up studying Hebrew and the Bible, but now in ba Babylon, Bible was not on the curriculum. As a matter of fact, he would learn a lot of things that would be in direct conflict with biblical values. That he will learn about their gods. He would also learn about divination and sorcery. And all of this was a deliberate attempt to unteach the Bible from their lives. And what is happening here is happening to us. That in a world that seeks to pull us away from God, it will first seek to pull us away from Scripture. That every day the world is seeking to brainwash us through social media, through influencers, through advertisements, and even in some of our schools and universities. That every day we're being asked to conform to this world. We're, we're being asked to reject the Bible's teaching on what happiness really is, on Jesus being the only way to salvation, on, on the sanctity of life, on marriage, on sexuality, on how to handle our money, on forgiveness and cancel culture, on letting go of our privileges and rights. The world will seek to unteach God's word. This is why it's imperative that as Christians, we must have our minds immersed in God's word. Because where there is a void in God's word, it will not stay void. It will be filled by something else. It was really interesting. I saw this thing on Facebook, just a quote, that a pastor said that if you do not disciple your kids, Satan will gladly do it for you. Man, that is convicting. We must fill our minds with the word of God. Let me just show you two verses here. Colossians chapter 3. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed by the, the world, but be conformed by the word of God. The third way Nebuchadnezzar sought to erode their faith was through seduction. Okay, what do I mean by that? Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. 
Now, what we see here is that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just trying to change their minds. He was also trying to change their lifestyle. Eat like a Babylonian and drink like a Babylonian and eat the very food that is catered from the king's kitchen. These Jewish teens had access to the best school, staying in the best place, eating the best food. And from the outside looking in, from all the little Babylonian boys and girls, they would have looked at these exiled Jewish teens and said, wow, they have the life. Wow, they hit the jackpot. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do. His goal was to entice and seduce them with the privileges of this life and how amazing that it would be so that they would never want to go back. That it was through pampering they would concede their faith. Nebuchadnezzar is not dumb here. He has conquered enough people to know that whips and chains can only take you so far. He knows the story of Pharaoh and how he beat up on the Israelites and he only rose up to challenge him. So Nebuchadnezzar is like, you know what? If I'm going to win these people over, if I'm going to conquer them, I'm going to do so by enticing them by opening doors of opportunity, by taking the best of their best, their nobility and their royal children and showing them how great their life is and it will convince the people, follow us. Your life with us is better than life with God. What is happening to them is happening to us. Satan knows that persecution doesn't really work that well against the church. The book of Acts shows that when the church is violently attacked, it just seems to find a way to keep growing, okay? That's what happens. So the way he attacks and weakens our faith, especially in the Western church, is the slow process of seduction and enticement. He intoxicates us with the splendors of a worldly life, and in time, in time, your faith becomes a distant memory. This is where some of us are today. The devil has enticed you away. How's he done it? Has it been through financial success, education, sexual freedom, status, the acceptance of others, the American dream? Have you bought it? Have you bought that? And here's the final way Nebuchadnezzar sought to erode their faith, and it was through confusion. Verse six and seven here. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezra of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Bethazar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshka. And Ezra, he called Abednego. Notice here that the names of these Jewish teens were now being changed. Now, changing names in our society is not really that big of a deal, but in that ancient world, it was because your name communicated the core of who you are. So by taking their name away, Nebuchadnezzar sought to take away their identity, that these Jewish teens had good Hebrew names that pointed to the glory of God, and Nebuchadnezzar changed their names to speak praise of his God. And let me just show you how this worked out here. Daniel means God is my judge. Bethesar means Bel, which is a Babylon God, protects his life. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Shadrach, the command of Aku, which again is a Babylonian God. Michelle, who is, who is what God is? Meshach, who is Aku is? Azariah, Yahweh is my helper. Abednego, servant of Nebo. All of these are foreign de deities. The tactic here was that by changing their names, that it would confuse them and lead them away from God because they would lose who they were. 
Once again, what is happening to them is happening to us. Now, our literal names might not be changed, but there are other names that draw us away from God. That maybe for some of us here, we grew up with harsh parents. And to this day, you know, we remember those words that we heard as a child. Stupid. You're ugly. You're such a disappointment. Those words that tore you down. Or maybe there's names that you've given yourself. That maybe somewhere down the line, you started calling yourself such a failure, such a loser. You know, you're so unlovable. You're such a big mess. Now, these names might not be on your driver's license, but these are the names that are leading you away from who you are in Christ. That instead of living a full and victorious life, a life that has been set free in Christ, you live in bondage, you live defeated, you live unwilling to accept the forgiveness. Friends, don't let the world and don't even let your own heart tell you who you are. Let Christ tell you who you are. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you are a child of God. Your eternity is secure. God will never leave you nor forsake you. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are righteous. You are pure. You are precious. You are a friend of God. You are delighted in. You are adopted. You are redeemed. You are blessed. That is who you are. The world, your heart, can try to call you a bunch of different names, but Jesus is the one who changes your nature. You are a new creation. Don't let the world confuse who you really are. And this leads us to the third and final point here. What is our hope? Fine, thank you. So we see from Daniel's friends, he's in exile, and, he has, and he's in this new culture that is seeking to erode their faith. And in the same way, you know, we're living in this world, and there's pressures on us constantly to conform to its mold. What hope did they have? What hope do we have? And it's this. God is always in control. That is a theme you're going to see all throughout the book of Daniel. Once again, verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, we know by now that this exile was because of Israel's disobedience, but what's more important to see here is that verse 2 isn't just a statement of God's justice, it's a statement that God is control in control. As a matter of fact, three times in chapter 1, we see the phrase, the Lord gave. We see it in verse 2. We see it in verse 9, and we also see it in verse 17. The Lord gave. Now, the circumstances doesn't make you think that God is really in control, does it? For example, the vessels of God are now trophies of wars for, for, for the Babylonians, and they paraded it around, and they put it in the house of their pagan God. And this was Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, we're stronger, our God is better than your God. And if you look at Daniel's situation, how could you not think that God abandoned them? Is God really in control? And I bet if you were to ask King Jehoiakim who is in charge, he would say, I am. I'm the king of Judah. But then Nebuchadnezzar comes in and you ask who's in charge. He would say, obviously, I'm in charge. Right? Everyone thinks they're in charge. Daniel makes clear in this opening chapter that none of you are in charge. God is the one at work, and he's using you to accomplish his purposes. That God uses his exile not just to bring discipline to his people, but he also uses his exile, as we will see later on, to bring himself glory through the faithful witness of Daniel and his friends. 
Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the Lord's hands. He turns it wherever he will. God is the boss above every boss. God is the ruler above every ruler. God is the king above every king. He is the one true God above every other false God. That God is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign, as we will see here, over international powers. And he's also sovereign over the lives of these teenage boys. He is sovereign over history. And he is sovereign over our future. As Christ followers, it is essential to our faith to know that God is in control. We must believe that God's sovereignty is as real as the person who's sitting right next to you because as people, we can be so fixated and focused on what we can see. And especially in a culture and society today where there is so much noise, so much chaos, so much uncertainty, we need to know that behind this world is a world where God rules and reigns. And this gives us hope to, for, for us who live in this world that has lost its mind. It gives us hope for us who live in exile because just like that, Daniel, your life may happen unexpectedly, but we know that God is working supernaturally. You know, just think about this. Daniel was in an impossible situation. He was trafficked. He saw his homeland invaded. His temple desecrated. His name was changed to praise a foreign god. And he was only four life right now. I might dare say that Daniel has you beat, okay? He has you beat right now. But the good news is that Daniel is always in control. Friends, God is in control of your life today. You can trust him, stay faithful to him, that whatever situation you are facing, you can have hope because even when we waver from God, he will never waver, man. Let's bow our heads.